When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. Okay, remember, maybe like two episodes ago, we were talking about BET has a new news program that comes on once a month. And I'm not getting paid to promote that. It's just the episode was really good. Or at least the snippet that I saw. I can't get BET over here. That's not the point. The point is, we talked about how one of my friends dropped a clip from a segment that was on this news show. There was an author. Her name is Dr. Chris Marsh. She's a sociology professor at the University of Maryland. And she's also the author of a new book called The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. So the clip that my friend shared, Dr. Chris... I asked her what she wanted to be called. I was like, are you Professor Marsh? Are you Dr. Marsh? I don't play with black women in their professional titles. She told me she wanted to be called Dr. Chris. You see where this is going. Okay. In this clip, she talks about being single by choice. And she had this amazing quote when she was talking about being single. She said, do not come in here and disrupt my peace. And I thought that quote was so, what's the word? emblematic of the conversations that I've been hearing from a lot of my friends and in just the discourse online from women when it comes to dating. There's an excellent piece right now on Madame Noir. My friend Denine Milner wrote it. She's writing about how for a certain segment of black women, marriage is no longer the goal. Let me find that. So Denine's article for Madame Noir, and you know Denine, she's been on the show a couple times, but her article is called Psalms for Black Girls. Marriage is no longer relationship goals for black women. Very controversial title, very controversial article. It's been getting a lot of buzz. But in this article, Deneen, she was married for over 25 years. She got divorced a couple years ago. And she talks about re-entering the dating market. And she hadn't dated, she says, since 1995. She says, the way these men folk conducted themselves was something. Which is to say that they were practicing the same fuck shit with the same take, 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 but don't ever give mentality I remember dealing with back in my 20s. They wanted sex without intimacy, time without investment, emotional labor without reciprocity, a label without companionship. We were meeting differently via dating apps and social media and such, but not much had changed from the way men were engaging us women folk in the 90s. She says, quote, the more I focused on what my heart needs rather than what others think it needs, the closer I came to understanding this one true thing. I am capable of immense love but I have zero desire to be married again. Marriage to me, you see, it's a commitment to an institution, one set up within a system that has clear and distinct roles for women, roles I have zero desire to fulfill ever again. I don't want to be my significant other's maid, chef, housekeeper, babysitter, organizer, trapped behind the prison bars that eventually surround relationships sanctioned by the government and sealed with a ring and the I do. So... Lots of conversation about this piece. I saw it on Deneen's Facebook page and the comments, especially from men, were interesting. I don't know why men spend so much time badgering women who don't want to marry to want to marry. I'm like, why don't y'all focus on the tons of women who do want to marry? 
So a big conversation about singleness and black women and marriage, it's always there. But articles like Deneen's and books like Dr. Chris's pushed the conversation forward and higher up in the zeitgeist. So the conversation was out there. I was really intrigued by Dr. Chris's quote, do not come in here and disrupt my peace. I was very intrigued by Dr. Chris. I told y'all I was going to track her down and did. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, please welcome Dr. Chris to Ratchet and Respectable. Dr. Chris, welcome to Ratchet and Respectable. I am so happy to have you on the show today. Likewise, I am so excited, elated to be here today. So thank you so much for having me. You're so very welcome. And you came to my attention because a friend dropped, you did an interview on BET for their new news show. And he dropped a clip in our group chat and everyone went crazy over one of your quotes. What did you say? Do not come here Mm. and disrupt my peace. Yeah, don't come up in here disrupting my peace. If you're not going to protect, protect and preserve my peace, I'm not interested. Yes, I saw what I was seeing and then I heard that line. I had to stop, start over and was like, who is this and what is this book? Your new book is called The Love Jones Cohort, Single and Living Alone in the Black Middle Class. And you spent seven years of research writing this book. You interviewed 62 Black adults who are unmarried with no children and you interviewed them about their single lives. Yes. What made you want to dive into this topic? Yes, it's seven long years and the book is finally out. I'm super duper excited about it. I wanted the book to come out last year because it was the same, it was the 25th anniversary of the movie Love Jones, but I'm totally okay with it being one year after the 25th anniversary. But the real reason for, for me writing the book is because I wanted to destigmatize singlehood. So much of what we watch and what we consume right now is about partnering and being married. And I'm just trying to get people to think about being single. I'd much rather you be single and be happy, healthy, and whole in your singleness than to be in an oppressive, toxic, or unfulfilling relationship simply because you don't want to hold the title of single. And so because of that, I wanted to look at those that were single and living alone in the black middle class. And if we were doing audience participation and I asked the listeners, when you think of like the quintessential black middle class family or upper middle class family on television, most listeners would probably default to the Huxtables on the Cosby show. But there's a new demographic that started to emerge in the big screen as well as the little screen. And what really spearheaded this changing demographic was the movie Love Jones. So the title is based on the characters in the movie Love Jones. Now, I am a sociologist, but I'm also a demographer. So a cohort means nothing more than a band of people. And so the title is the Love Jones Cohort. So it's a band or group of people that are single and living alone, the black middle class. I want to understand more about their lifestyle. So the book is trying to understand the lifestyle of those that are single and living alone. Okay. So I log on to the internet, some form or fashion of social media, pretty daily. Okay. And overwhelmingly, relationships, like you said, marriage, love, but also singles, rarely discussed, I should say, in a good way, overwhelmingly dominate the content that I'm seeing on my timelines, clubhouse, Twitter spaces, like everywhere. The single Black women get an incredibly bad rap. They do. The idea is that we are, we're incredibly lonely. We cry into our pillows every night because of our loneliness and our fear of dying alone. We have no friends. We have no family that, that count as people loving us. And 
cats. There's always cats involved. Dying, dying alone with cats is the trajectory for single Black women. What did you find when you did your expertise and your research and actually talking to single, you talked yeah. to men and women, but I'm just first going to ask you about the women. What did you find when you spoke to single Black women? That they're living full lives as singles. Now, some of them never wanted to be partnered. Being in a relationship was never for them. But the ones that did or wanted to be in a relationship, they weren't in a relationship right now. They were hopeful that a relationship might happen. But in the meantime, and between time, they were living very full lives as single adults. They were buying homes. They were thinking about where they wanted to live. They had wonderful non-romantic relationships with other females that really helped them navigate their single lives. And they were enjoying the freedom of being single. People often think that it's like a, it's a death sentence. I was so tired of always having this deficit model. Like why aren't black women getting single black women getting married? I hope after people read the book, they're just as likely to ask somebody, why are you married? As we ask somebody, why are you single? We often ask single folks, why are you single? But we never ask married folks why they're married and or why they have children and wait for a coherent response. So it's really important that we stop privileging marriage because just because you're married doesn't mean you're happy. It doesn't mean you're you're not lonely. All of those same attributes you talked about with the single household can be the same attributes that are happening in a marriage household. People think that marriage is a panacea for everything. It's going to cure everything. And it doesn't because sometimes it's better to be alone if people don't like the word alone, you can call it a lovely one. So if you're a lovely one and you're happy, it much, I'd much rather be uh, by myself in my house than being with someone and feeling like I'm alone and I'm, and I'm by myself. And so I really wanted to show and demonstrate the lifestyles of people that are single. I didn't want to just talk about them not being married. What else can we talk about? And that's what the book really does try to do, tries to highlight the lifestyle, what they are doing. And one of the key things that they are doing is valuing those non-romantic relationships that they have with other women. What was really interesting in the book is that Black women really have that thing on lock where they have these sister circles and the sister girls that can help them navigate singleness. Black men didn't necessarily have those same non-romantic nurturing relationships that the Black women spoke of quite often in the book. Part of that is because, and the men in the cohort talked about it consistently, that there's this narrative that if they have these non-romantic nurturing relationships with other men, they must be gay, they must be soft. So I do hope that in reading this book, people normal, Black men in particular, normalize having non-romantic nurturing relationships with other men because Black women are doing that and doing it very well. I thought the, the results of, of your, your study on single Black men were very interesting because in, in light of the conversations that are so often had online, because it seemed like a lot of what they say about Black women is projecting from what they may be experiencing as single Black men. That there is a sense of loneliness. There is a fear of dying alone. I think with Black women, as you just pointed out from your research, is we have, you know, biological family. We have friends that are like family. We have nieces and nephews and godchildren and coworkers and friends and all of that. So the idea of dying alone, like literally alone, unmarried perhaps, but alone. Right. I want to push back against that whole idea about dying alone. 
society has instilled that in us. And people are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die alone. And because of that, they end up in these relationships that may not be the best for them simply because they don't want to quote unquote die alone. To your point, just because you're unmarried or never married doesn't mean that you're going to be alone. If my one of my dearest girlfriends calls me and I can hear a frog in her throat or I can hear her voice being raspy, I'm headed to the grocery store. I'm buying her some Theraflu. I'm buying her some tea. I'm buying her some juice and I'm taking it over there to her house because that's how we roll. So will now if you're in a relationship, would you do the same thing? We make a whole set of assumptions about being in relationships and what relationships look like. And it's like, and assuming that it's just this panacea, it's like, oh, my dude's going to bring me soup and so on and so forth. That's not always the case. And I do wish people that were in relationships and or were married would be way more transparent about the relationships that they do have because everything, again, is catered to a marriage market, but marriages don't always look the same way. And you don't get all the same returns out of marriages. And we don't talk enough about that part either. Also, statistically, don't men die earlier than women? So like, even if you were married for like 50 years, like you did the quote and unquote right thing, your husband's more likely to die than die first than, than, than wife. Right. So there is some data to suggest that men die earlier than women do. And there's a really great book by Elia Kim Kislev. He wrote a book called Going Happy Singlehood. And in Elia Kim's book, Happy Singlehood, one of the arguments that he makes, and I, t- I say the same argument in my book, is that People who have never married and age, they tend to live happier lives in in older ages versus those that do marry and have to return to singlehood. Part of the reason for that is what the data is suggesting and what some of my cohort members have actually kind of talked about as well is that people who are never married or are unpartnered, they build built next networks and they build networks to help them navigate through life. So they got a set of friends that they'll go to church with. They have a set of friends that they'll go golfing with. They have a set of friends that they'll go clubbing with. And so as they age, they have different friends to draw on for different things. People that are married, they lose their partner because of separation, widowhood, or divorce. They find themselves returning back to singlehood, but they put all of their emotional eggs in the marriage basket. And because of that, they don't know how to navigate life without their partner and they find themselves to be unhappy. So the so the overall conversation has to center around these non-romantic relationships, how we undervalue those and we overvalue being in romantic relationships. So much so, I was talking to like some counselors just the other day and I say, I was saying, it's really funny how we've got all of these marriage and family therapists where when your relationship's going bad, you can have, you know, all of these people that can come and talk to you and help you with the relationship, but we don't value those same type of services. We don't even have the same type of services for our friends. So if you, you know, we, we sometimes have divorces with our friends as well, but friends are really important and essential, essential to the single lifestyle. And I do think like if there is a hiccup in your friendship, you should be able to go see a counselor and work through that hiccup in your friendship. Why do we invest so much in the relationship, making the marriage relationship work, but we don't do the same investment in friendships. So I would argue that counselors really need to really step their game up and really need to market to friends to make sure that when they do have hiccups, they have a place where they can go and a resource that can help them work through their friendships. There's a woman in our friend group, and I have many friend groups, so there's a woman who's sort of like central. She's like one of those butterfly types. One of her functions in the friend circles is to help repair the relationships. Like we call her Switzerland as a joke, but like, it's kind of what she does. Like she'll give a call and be like, you know, I heard from, you know, so-and-so you guys haven't talked in a few months, you know, she wants to have a conversation. Would you be open to that? Like she understands, you know, she had some missteps and maybe she didn't use the right tone. She didn't speak to you the right way, but I think there's some, there's love there. Can we have a conversation? 
And I think that's wonderful. And that's great. And we there we need to do that more so in our personal settings. But I also think we need to institutionalize and really have a market that caters to friends. And I just don't know that there's enough services out there just for friends. I'm, I'm going to ask this question, and I don't mean it in the accusatory way in the, which, which, which we just spoke about it. Um, but you've done this research, and I'm really, really curious why people said that they didn't get married. One of the things I argue in the book and one of the things that I tried to tease out and I grappled with as a scholar is like, are people, Black people in particular, are they single by choice or are they single by force? One of the things the book really tries to do is to offer a structural conversation. And so I think it's important for us to understand how structural forces constrain our personal choices. Put differently, racism constrains our personal choices for illustration purposes. If I, Chris Marsh, want to marry a heterosexual Black man with a PhD, my dating choices are constrained. If I, Chris Marsh, want to marry somebody with a a Black man with a PhD who owns his own home, my, my dating structures are constrained. My dating choices are constrained. If I want to marry somebody that has a PhD, owns their own home, and has estate planning, my dating choices are constrained. Which gets back to the point about the BET thing that I was on the other day. The argument becomes, should Black women lower their standards? First of all, stop policing Black women, telling Black women what we should and should not do. How everybody going to tell us what we should not should and should not do, how we should live? Highly problematic. But more importantly, the argument is that Black women should change their standards and lower their standards. And I am of the mindset as a sociologist, I'm like, we need to tackle this from a structural perspective. So if we want to try to increase marriage rates, maybe we should pay Black folks reparations. Maybe that might change marriage rates. Let's take it from the individual and make it a more of a structural conversation. Because if we leave it at the individual, you have some Black women saying, what's wrong with me? Why can't I have a partner? Why can't I find somebody? But the reality is your dating choices are constrained before you even get to the conversation. But with all of that being said as background and as context, I asked the people in the cohort, are you single by choice? Are you single by force? There was a small subset that were like, I am single. I never wanted to be married. I never wanted to be partnered. But for those that did want to be partnered, a lot of them said that they were single by choice. They They were choosing to be single right now. But then it became a quite convoluted and murky conversation because they often talked about how previous previous circumstances forced them to choose to be single now. So it's not a clear-cut answer on whether or not it's by choice or by force. It really does appear to be an amalgamation of both, but we cannot lose focus of the fact that there are constraints in the choices that you're making regardless. You just mentioned reparations, which is economics essentially. What difference would that make in the marriage market? I don't want to be the person that says like, some people think marriage is the panacea to uh, happiness. I don't want people to think that reparations is the panacea to marriage rates. But what I am trying to get us to think about is more of a structural conversation. So if we do offer uh, capital to Blacks in America by way of reparations, I think you would see more people that are getting PhDs. You would see more people that are owning homes. You see more people that have estate planning, stuff like that. So now I have a bigger dating pool that I could actually choose from. And so that's why I'm just saying reparations might be one way because it it gives access to capital to Black Americans. So that's one argument. I guess other people could very well say, well, Black women should just lower their standards. I guess some people could say that. I'm not buying that argument. The idea of lowering your standards while choosing a life partner, someone that you intend to spend 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life with, and it's someone who's 
not what you're looking for and doesn't meet your core standard sounds like misery. Right. And it's it's kind of odd because it seems like that narrative is only superimposed on Black women. We got to make all these accommodations for everybody else. And it's, the onus should not be on Black women. It really is a structural conversation. How about eliminate school uh, student debt? How about that? Try that. But everything's like, we got to do this, that, and the other. And that's just short-sighted. I think it's very short-sighted. What I thought was interesting, because I had to decide whether or not I wanted to write the book about Black women or about Black men. Clearly, Black women dominate the category. And so one of the things that was interesting interesting in the data set and among the respondents is that whole conversation about choice or force. And one of the things that the women said versus the men, the women said that they were hopeful that they might get married or partnered one day. The men said it's just a matter of time before they get partnered. So that was a very different approach to thinking about singlehood. Many, many years ago, when I, I started my career, as, well, part of my career, as a relationship blogger, one of my counterparts used to run this blog called Until I Got Married. And he wrote once about how him wanting to be married was really just a matter of making the decision to say, I want to be married. And then he'd find someone and he would be married. It was just sort of a given. Whereas with Black women, it's a... I don't know. I hope. I mean, if you know, the odds are in my favor. If we'll see, you know, it's a real up in the air kind of thing. And that is really interesting. And the respondents said the same thing. One of the things that I appreciate about the respondents is they talked about the freedom of being single and how being single allowed them certain freedoms. But I want to be balanced because some of them did say that they were sometimes lonely. Now, when they talked about loneliness, I think it's chapter eight or nine. They talked about situational loneliness, loneliness. They weren't talking about long-term loneliness. They were situationally lonely, maybe during Valentine's Day, maybe during New Year's Eve. And they had friends that helped them get through that situational loneliness. It wasn't this debilitating loneliness that people speak of where they're in a fetal position, covers up over their head, can't speak, can't talk, just want to lay in the bed. No, I didn't have singles that had that kind of loneliness, but it was situational around like those quote unquote romantic holidays, but the friends were really essential to helping them through those moments. When I go on the internet, and I specifically keep saying when I go on the internet, because in my real life conversations, I don't hear this, but it's a chronic narrative online and it reaches a lot of people and a lot of people are affected by it. But when I log on, I see all these conversations about relationships and and marriage rates and why Black people aren't getting married. And from the men, it's largely the feminist industrial complex of independent women with degrees who think they know everything and think they don't need men and they're all going to die lonely. And then for women, it's largely more or less men haven't much evolved. They're still wanting this this position of leadership. They want submission. They have antiquated ideas about women. Um, They don't have emotional intimacy or great communication skills. In fact, I mean, you could probably boil it down to they're just not very likable and women don't want to put up with that shit. Can you speak to that at all as as reasons for singleness? I think it's twofold. I think um, when we think about singleness and I think some of those stereotypes and those tropes they lead the conversation and they dominate the conversation. I think it's highly problematic if we stereotype 
anybody. I make a certain set of assumptions about somebody simply because they're in a group. Are there some ball buster black women out there? Yes. Are there some beautiful black women out there? Yes. Do not stereotype and assume they're all the same. Are there some men that are just tramps and whores? Absolutely. Are there some beautiful black men out there? Absolutely. We should not stereotype, but unfortunately we look at some people's pedigree or their accolades and make a certain set of assumptions around them. And that's short-sighted and we should not do that. But I also think it's important to understand how these stereotypes and these tropes are infused in our mind, in our consumption of media and social media on a daily basis. And we have to work really hard to push back against those stereotypes. And they're simply stereotypes. And there's some women that don't fit any of those, those stereotypes. And there's black men that don't fit any of those stereotypes. But still and yet, it's much easier to just say, oh, she's probably like that. And not even give them an opportunity to have a conversation with them and even think about dating them as a partner. Also interesting in this conversation, like we're, we're specifically discussing Black people in America, men and women, but the decline of marriage rates, or maybe, maybe put it in a, a more positive way, the rise of singlehood is something that's happening in other communities, white communities as well. Right. But it's also something that's happening worldwide. I was reading right before we logged on, there's another book that just came out um, called Opt Out. Women messing with marriage around the world. So researchers are talking about declining marriage rates worldwide. And I wonder if you could speak overall to that, like what's going on with all of us that we're not engaging with marriage in the same way, that we're choosing singlehood. I think what's really important, I think a really good question for people to ask themselves is why do you want to be in a romantic relationship? It's an easy question, but it's a very thoughtful question that people have to answer. And the reason why I say that is because why do you want to be in a relationship? People should be able to articulate a romantic relationship. People should be able to articulate why they want to be in romantic relationships. And unfortunately, if people are honest, nine out of 10 people would say, because that's what I see. That's what I've been told. Because media and social media does a very good job of always catering to the married person, the partnered person. So it's a really thoughtful question that people really should ask themselves. Why do I want to be in a relationship? But a part of that question though, too, is Because you have a lot of non-romantic relationships. Why, again, do we put so much emphasis and so much value on the romantic relationships and we underestimate or we undervalue the non-romantic relationships? So when people say what kind of they want to be in a relationship or why do I want to be in a relationship? I think it's important for them to clarify what kind of relationship, because most of us are in some type of relationship. It's just not necessarily a romantic relationship. And why do you want more than what you're getting in some of your other relationships? It's a thoughtful question. It's an easy question, but people should actually answer that question. Now, to your point about singlehood, I think COVID allowed us to ask some of those really hard questions. Why do I want to be in this relationship or why do I want to be in a relationship? And I think globally, marriage rates have changed across the world. And uh, and so we're seeing a rise in singlehood. But what I think is really interesting, one of the things that I argue in the book, in American context in particular, Black women have been doing singlehood for quite some time, whether or not it's by choice or whether it's by whether it's by force. We can have that conversation. But one conversation we have to have is that you've got to pay respect and homage and give flowers to black women because black women have been showing 
other people how to do it. We are the trailblazers. We are the pioneers. We are the forward thinkers. We're the innovators. We have shown other racial and ethnic groups how to do singlehood and how to do it well. I think it's important that whether or not it's changing globally, somewhere in that conversation has to always be Black women. Like most things that are, I think, sort of demonized with Black women, when you take the the melanin out of it, it becomes something that's celebrated. Black women being single mothers, it's baby mama, it's unworthy, it's bad. When white women start having children, more children out of wedlock, since it's always been a thing, it becomes something that's celebrated. It's a trend. It's like, it's what's new, what's next. Like, look at this new interesting, fabulous thing that white women are onto. And it's like, wait, like I got demonized for that. Why you get celebrated? Absolutely. Not on my watch. Can I talk about something that's really, really interesting to me? And I want to know if the listeners think about it. Sure. Sure. Okay. So like I said, if you buy my argument that structural forces constrain personal choices, especially for black women and their dating patterns, I am of the argument that we need to redefine how we think about family. If we think about the way in which family is defined now, I'm using the Census Bureau definition. That's kind of the gold standard. What they say a family is, is someone that you're related to by blood, marriage, or adoption. Now, if we think that structural forces constrain personal choices, I would argue that we need to define people that are single and living alone or people that have never married as a family. I want to be a family of one. There are advantages to being in a family. Let me give you three. First one, benign one, cell phone plans, a family plan. I want to be able to pay the family plan on my one cell phone because it's just me. Slightly more egregious, single occupancy versus double occupancy. I am doing a book tour. I'm trying to talk to anybody and everybody who will listen to me talk about people that are single and living alone in the black middle class. After this book tour, I'm going to need a vacation. But if I go on vacation, I'm going to pay a single occupancy rate versus a double occupancy rate. Single is more. A much more egregious example would be the tax structure. There is a singlehood penalty or a marriage advantage embedded in the tax structure. There's a black woman who wrote this really great book. She comes out of the law to law tradition. Her name is Dorothy Brown, and she wrote a book called The Whiteness of Wealth. The argument that Dorothy Brown is making in her book is that everybody should um, file taxes as single. If you're not going to file taxes as single, my argument is we should all be able to file as a family. I want to be a family of one. I want to file my taxes as the Marsh family plan, and I want to be able to get the benefits as a Marsh family. I was literally on a radio show and the DJ said, that's absurd. I was like, okay, maybe it's absurd, but we at least got to think about it because if we believe my argument that structural forces constrain personal choices and then you're discriminated against me because I'm single in plain sight, that is insidious. That is highly problematic. And we need to push back against that. I need to be considered a family. If you don't want to buy my argument about the family of one, um, I talk about in the book, I call it the Sala family plan. I do think like to the point that I've been making about how friends are essential to this single lifestyle, I think we could develop these augmented families where two non-romantic people can team up together, get the benefits of the family from the tax structure, from purchasing property, from estate planning, and then benefit in the augmented family. And when I talk about the augmented family, I'm talking about an older sociologist, Andrew Billingsley, who done some work talking about augmented families, how they're these non-romantic families that we really should institutionalize and give some kind of credit to. So I do think that being single opens up so many more opportunity around policy and conversations about how do we think about family? Is it antiquated? Is it discriminated in plain sight? So I'm so appreciative for the respondents that talked to me in the book. And I think the book really highlights a lot of these things that we really haven't thought about, but have been in plain sight the whole time. 
What do you say to people who hear what you're saying about being a family of one and be like, hey, we acknowledge that there is, to call it what it is, discrimination against singles, but you're a single person and you want the benefits of marriage without entering the institution of marriage. If that's what you want, why not just get married? You have to dovetail with my earlier argument saying that structural forces, racism has constrained my choices. I don't have the options. I don't have the options. The options just aren't there. So what am I supposed to do? You want me to interracially marry? You got a problem with that too. Right. So you're saying like, just go get married. I'm like, how about you just give me, give black people access to resources where you can increase my dating pool. That's the other part of the argument that people don't want to have. Please understand. Let me be real, real clear. I get hate mail. I get hate mail saying I'm bad for black America. I'm not supporting families. I'm not supporting marriage. I am emphatic. I say it clearly in the book. I am pro marriage. I am pro black love, but I'm not for being in toxic relationships simply for the sake of being in a relationship so you can have a marriage title. I'm not for that. I'm never going to support that. But if you can be happy, healthy, and confident in your singleness before you get married, albeit. I'm also saying, let's be more inclusive of how we think about Black love and Black family and not just have this heteronormative mother, father, 2.5 kids on a Black picket fence to to represent Black love and Black families. Let's be more inclusive, not less. Oh, that's completely unsurprising to me. I get hate mail. I don't even talk about relationships as much anymore. No, people just don't want to listen to the argument and to the conversation. They're like, oh, she's talking about singles. She's bad for Black America. Well, I think you're you're challenging, not I think, you are challenging a very wide-held belief that marriage is the the, the soothing, the balm for, for all the ills in, in the Black community. Balm and Gilead, right? <laughs> that's what we're always told. Everything would be solved if, if just... Specifically, if a man and a woman got married and had two children, there would be no no drugs, no alcohol, no crime. We would all have money. But I also think that something else that you're challenging, and I'm sure you're aware of it, is the idea, especially for women, prioritizing their happiness over an MRS title. The idea that women are prioritizing anything other than relationships specifically, but men and their needs, wants, desires. I think the idea that women should want to be happy and married, not not an either or, but happy and married, if that's the route you're going to choose, really shakes a lot of people up. Right. And so, you know, it's really funny because one, I really, I, I'm a woman of faith. So I really wanted to be in black churches talking about my book. After I wrote my book and I realized how critical I was of the idea of marriage and the way some black churches promote marriages that can be oppressive in some ways, I was like, I don't know that black churches are going to come have me speak about uh, relationships. But I do think that in some ways, I don't call this my ministry, but I do believe that if one person reads my book and either gets out of an oppressive, toxic, and unfulfilling relationship simply because of the title they wanted to hold, or they don't get into those relationships that are unhealthy for them, then my work here is done. There's so much stuff that's pushing us to be partnered and married, but there's a very little alternative or counter narrative to that very present dominant narrative. And the book is simply trying to provide a counter narrative. I'm not trying to break up anybody's marriage, but I think it's really important for us to think about our individual happiness well before we think about the relationship, relational happiness that we may or may not be experiencing. I have a girlfriend who's been married for nearly 30 years. Now, maybe 28 of those might have been uh, not so good, but two of those were good. But we bannerize people being married for 30 years, not knowing how that relationship actually is. And I do wish married folks would be a little bit more transparent about their 
marriage and how their and the happiness in their marriage, which is something I talk about in the book. It's a subtle argument that I make, but it's so funny how when you're single, your dating practices and your sexual activity can be public consumption. Everybody wants to know what's going on, who you dating, you getting yourself some. But we don't ask those same kind of question of married folks. We keep that conversation taboo. You're single. My my dating practice is public consumption. Married, there's reverence for married folks. That's kind of problematic for me as well. I'm fresh off the heels of, of everyone talking about Sierra's outfit at the Vanity Fair Oscars after party on Sunday. She, I don't know if you saw it, but she had this very revealing outfit. And like the internet is just abuzz with it. Like people are having pure meltdowns about this dress, um, as if they are married to Sierra. But I would argue that, that married women, in a different way, but in a, the same intensity that single women are policed for their choices, I think married women are equally so, just in a different way. And I think we need to stop policing Black women, period. If that if that, that young woman wants to wear that beautiful dress that looks well, fabulous on her, let her do that. Why are we always policing Black women? Why are we always telling Black women how we need to act, talk, think, speak, how loudly we can speak, how loudly we can't speak, what we can wear, what we can't wear. It's exhausting. One of the things I do talk about in the book is this notion about respectability politics and how the notion of respectability politics is that we have to purport ourselves into certain kind of ways to fit into the white norm to be con- to, to prevent ourselves from being um, discriminated against, but also to fit into like the standard. I'm pushing back about what the standard is. What is the standard? For X, Y, and Z, whatever, whatever, whatever it may possibly be. What's the standard for being single? What's the standard for being married? What's the standard for being a wife? What's the standard for being a husband? What's the standard for being a professor? All of these standards are steeped in whiteness and privileging whiteness. I think we all need to take thoughtful views at what standards really are. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about the book that you want the readers to know or the listeners to know? The book is not just for single folks. Everybody at some point in time has been single. That's one category that we've all fallen in at one point in time. Even if you're married, you can pick up the book and learn something from it. Even if you're not black, I think there's something in there for you. Even if you're not middle class, the book credits across multiple disciplines, a multiple identities, multiple areas. So just because you're not single and living alone in the black middle class doesn't mean that the book won't enrich you in many ways. So everybody should buy the book. It shouldn't just be singles. Can you tell us where we can get your book? My website is Dr. Chris Marsh. That's D-R-K-R-I-S-M-A-R-S-H.com. You'll have a link to Cambridge as well as Amazon. You can go directly to Amazon and buy the book, The Love Jones Cohort. And you can go to Cambridge Publishing and you can buy the book there. You can also follow me on social media where all of my the, all of my social medias have links to my book. For social media, my um, handle is Dr. Chris Marsh. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. And I recently just got on TikTok because I'm supposed to do a podcast and I had to be on TikTok, but I have like five followers on TikTok. I love it. I have a copy on the way, but also I can just pick one up from you when you're here in Johannesburg at the end of the month. I'll be there at the end of the month. I have three book talks scheduled in South Africa. So super excited about that. Yes, I can't wait to meet you in person and get a signed copy. Yes, consider it done. Wasn't she worth the wait? Not that it was a long wait. She DM'd me before I DM'd her. I talked about her on the episode 
And then someone tagged her and was like, Demetria is talking about you on Ratchet and Respectable. And then she reached out and was like, hey, I heard you talking about me. Thanks for mentioning my book. And I was like, so you want to come on the show? She was like, I can just do it in person when I get to Johannesburg. And I was like, no, I want you now. I can't wait to the end of the month. I want to talk to you now. So we did. And it was worth it. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed conversing. So that is the episode for this week. There's so much stuff to talk about. Just as I was, um, I was doing a last pass of anything crazy that happened that we absolutely must discuss on this episode. Apparently, Damson Idris and Chloe Bailey have a sex scene in some new show on Netflix. We'll talk about that next week. In the meantime, I'll be listening to Usher's Glue. He just released it today. So I've been listening to it on title all afternoon, annoying the hell out of my neighbors because I was listening loud and trying to hit Usher's falsetto loud. And all off key, but my heart was in it. I had red wine. I was feeling good. I'm about to have some more too now that the podcast is done. You enjoy your Friday night. Get you a Damson Idris sex scene on Netflix. And then go ahead and put on Glue by Usher. Okay, we'll be back next week. If I have Wi-Fi. I'm going to Kruger to see some animals. Okay.